this morning as we continue in our teaching series, the book of Joshua, we're going to meditate on a very well-known part of the story. I would say the most well-known part of the book of Joshua. We're talking about the, God, the, the Battle of Jericho. So very well-known children's Sunday school, I guess, your Friday school Bible story. At this point in, in the story of Joshua, we've seen that God's people have gone from wandering in the wilderness into being led by God's presence with the ark, with the leader Joshua, to cross over the parted Jordan River. And God prepared them, we saw this last week, prepared them spiritually to go and be victorious, to go and conquer the land that God had promised them to their ancestor Abraham five centuries earlier. And now they're on the cusp, they're on the plains of Jericho, the first major city that has to be defeated to then take the city. And so we pick up with that in Joshua chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. We'll be in verses 13 through 15. We'll also look at chapter 6 today. So Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And God's Word says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Very powerful beginning of this part of the story. So you see General Joshua. He's looking down the horizon, looking at Jericho, this first, again, major city with his huge and thick walls, this fortified city. And as he's looking and he's inspecting Jericho, he sees a man, a very impressive, I would imagine, maybe even a very intimidating man standing there. And, and Joshua, I don't know what he was feeling. I don't know if he was nervous. I don't know if he kind of went for a sword and just kind of had his hand laying there. It doesn't say, but what is recorded is that Joshua didn't recognize him, and he says, are you for us or are you against us? So whose side are you on? And, and this very impressive man says, neither. He answers in the negative. He says, no. So he's saying, neither. And the commander of the army of the Lord. And so this, this man holding his sword is telling Joshua I am not in any category that you're now thinking about. I am not an Israelite, but nor am I a Canaanite, the enemy. I am neither. I am the commander of the Lord's army. I am for the kingdom of God. Now, the text here is actually filled with some mystery. It, it doesn't say who this person is. Now, the word for angel isn't used, and the word God isn't used either. And so it doesn't say exactly who he is, but here's what we do know. That this person is the equivalent of Joshua in the heavenly realm. He's a commander of the army, as Joshua was a commander of the Israelite army. This text also tells us that this person, this man, received worship from Joshua. And so Joshua 
sees who he is, and he bows down to the ground, and he starts worshiping him, and, and he receives that worship. The angel, this person, didn't stop Joshua from worshiping. So he then tells him to take off his sandals, which is the same thing that Moses heard. Remember, Joshua is the leader after Moses died. When the previous leader, Moses, was standing in God's very presence at the burning bush, you may recall from Exodus, that Moses was told, take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. And so you start to piece together what we do see in this text is that this was likely more than an angel. This was like the very presence of God himself that Joshua was standing before on holy ground, receiving worship from Joshua. Now, even though it doesn't, there's, again, there's a little bit of mystery in who this person is, this much is absolutely clear. Here's what we do know from the text, that this is God speaking to Joshua. This is God communicating very clearly, revealing himself, whether his own presence in a human form or an angel. Regardless, this is God communicating with Joshua and telling him, I'm here, there's a spiritual battle, and he has this sword, which indicates that there's going to be a battle. And he's assuring Joshua, I'm here, I have come, this battle belongs to God. And so as we begin this and look now at chapter 6, let's look at the main idea, the primary truth of verses 513 through the end of chapter 6. That's one unit. The primary truth here is that God leads his people to victory for the sake of his glory. And so this, this heavenly being that is speaking to Joshua is making it clear that he is about to go to battle and destroy, defeat the enemy. But we'll see in chapter 6, it is all for the glory of God. And, and the victory that we have is because of God's doing in his glory. Because our God is indeed glorious. And he is displaying his magnificence, his eternal perfections. And he's displaying who he is through everything that he does and who he is. So God's very essence is glory. He emanates glory to who he is and what he does. And he gives us victory to display his eternal glory. Let's read chapter 6 together, the first nine verses. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand and with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and all the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets 
with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets. And the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. So what we're seeing here is the people of Jericho are absolutely terrified. They have shut the gates. They're expecting a siege. And they're, they're just hiding behind the walls. And they are terrified. As we saw last week, their hearts had melted in fear. They're afraid of the God of the Israelites and the army of the Israelites. And so then God gives Joshua these somewhat unusual instructions. Remember, he's a man of war. He's a soldier. And God says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to march around the city. And you're going to have seven priests, each holding a trumpet. So seven trumpets. And they're going to blow their trumpets. So this is, this is the sound of war that's going to go forth. And yet you're not going to attack. So Joshua's thinking, okay, so we'll... We'll have the ark, we'll have all the soldiers, and we'll, we'll blow trumpets of war, but then we're going to attack, right? No, you go back to camp. Oh, and what about the next day? Do it again. Walk around, blow the trumpets with God's presence in the middle of all the military personnel, intimidating the, the people of Jericho, no doubt. Everyone is encircling them, blowing these trumpets, and yet a second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day, go back to camp. Uh, okay, I can imagine if our military leader in that day, I'd be thinking, so when do we actually attack? Okay, on the seventh day, do it again. This time, seven times. And Joshua obeys the instruction. He's hearing God's word. And it doesn't make any sense from a human standpoint. To do this, this is not in the military handbook. All right, this is not the way wars are fought and won. This is, this is not going to be in any military doctrine. And yet, he believes God because God has shown himself historically to be trustworthy. And so what happens? Verses 15 through 21, we pick up the story there. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take in the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of 
the sword. This is victory. This is the power of God leading his people to victory over the enemy. So God's people heard God's word. They believed God's word. They clung to his promises. And then they obeyed his instructions. And it led them to have victory over the enemy. Even though the instructions did not really make sense initially. Now, as we look through this text, I want to draw out, I want to show you four specific ways that God right here is displaying his glory and why it matters for you and me today as we follow Jesus and in the Emirates Park Zoo and as we leave and follow him where you live and what you have to do this week. These four specific ways that God is revealing his glory must shape how we think and how we speak and how we live today. So number one, God reveals his glory by keeping his promises. He's displaying that he is glorious by making, but more importantly, by keeping his promises. So that's number one. Now, when you know the context here, this makes so much more sense. Again, 500 years earlier, God revealed himself to a man named Abram, who was renamed Abraham. In Genesis 17, he makes him some promises. He tells him that his descendants will have an everlasting possession that the land of Canaan will be everlasting, so an eternal possession. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people and you will enjoy me and reflect my glory in this good land forever. And so God's desire then and continues to be today, which we see completed in Revelation, in his prophecy of the future. We know that God's plan has been to create a people that he then sanctifies, makes holy, that he then lives with, that he lives among his people who see his beauty and savor his goodness and enjoy him in this good land for eternity. So that's what God is doing. He has a plan. And everything that he is doing from creation all the way to the consummation, which we will see one day when, when Revelation is complete, what we'll see is God dwelling with a holy people who enjoy him and each other from every tribe, nation, and tongue forever. And so when you're seeing these promises of the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, it is pointed to something greater than just the real estate between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. It's pointing to something greater, something eternal. It's pointing to our King Jesus, who will be the ultimate captain, who will come and defeat the enemy, and we will live forever on the new heavens and the new earth. This is pointing to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. God is progressively revealing his plan through the Bible. So the Bible is one story, the story of God's redemption, through one character. His name is Jesus. And he is unfolding and he is progressively revealing more with, from Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament all the way through the end with the book of Revelation. And so Jericho is one stop along the way where God is revealing his plan. And so what's happening in Jericho was very important because it's showing that God has a plan and he is keeping his promises. And so we can trust him. 
we can trust our God even when there's things that we're called to do that maybe don't even really make sense at the time. Yet we trust Him. Because the Scriptures prove that He has a plan. He makes promises and He keeps them. And so the land of Canaan, His fulfillment, is pointed to something much greater. And our God keeps His promises. He absolutely does. And we wait that day when when our king returns and gives us the privilege of entering into the ultimate promised land, into heaven, where all our enemies will be defeated, where all of your struggles will be a distant memory, where our temptations will be gone, when every pain, when everything that is sad will be undone, we'll have rest from the enemy, eternal rest. That day is coming with no more toil. And so we must hold on to our God's promises. But here's the thing. You can't hold on to something unless you know what it is. And so how can you hold on to God's promises unless you know what they are? And how will you know what God's promises are unless you read His Word? You have to read the Bible. You have to. And not just on Friday mornings. That's not enough. And not just in your home group. Now that's good. That's a start. But you need to feed your soul beyond Friday morning and beyond your home group. You have to be devouring, feeding your soul from God's Word so that you can know what His plans are for you. Because you won't have any clarity unless you are truly abiding in Christ, unless you're reading His Word, unless you're thinking slowly and processing what it is that you're reading, and then by God's help you can apply it every day and read His promises and by His grace cling to them and believe that Jesus is better than whatever the world has to offer. So first we're seeing in this text that God displays His glory by keeping His promises. But secondly, we also see here that God reveals His glory through His obedient children. So through obedient children. So Joshua was obedient here. He followed the instructions perfectly. So he had tasted of God's glory. Remember, this is the same Joshua who was with Moses at Mount Sinai. When there was all the fireworks, remember that? Whenever God spoke with a booming voice and he revealed his, his word at Mount Sinai, Joshua was right there. And Joshua was also with Moses in the tabernacle. No one else had that privilege. Joshua, being the assistant, got to see, really experience God's presence like no one else other than Moses himself. He saw that. Joshua was there when the Red Sea was parted and the Egyptians were all destroyed. Joshua was there when he fought against other kings when they were still in the wilderness and they were defeated. Joshua was there when the Jordan River was parted. He was just there now when this heavenly being says, I'm with you and I've come to defeat the enemy. So Joshua had seen, he had tasted of God's glory. Joshua was a man that had drank deep from living water. You see, we talk about Jesus as living water, but sometimes we don't think what that actually means. Now, from every home country, I've noticed that there's different drinks that are unique. Like, everyone I talked to from South Africa likes rooibos. That seems to be, that's the main tea, right? And then you, you talk to Kenyans, and they have their, their tea that's common in their place. And, and you talk to a Texan, 
And we don't really have a, a traditional tea. We have Dr. Pepper. Like, that's, that's the Texas drink. But you can't get it here very often. And then about a month ago, we were in Mushrif Mall, and my wife was just so excited. She's like, oh, there's Dr. Peppers. She was so excited. We, we bought a few, and it was like six Durham for a can. It's so stupid. But anyway, so point is, you drink something because you enjoy it, right? Like, I've gotten hooked on chai. That's, that's my thing here recently. I love chai tea. And so I, I told my, my white, blonde wife, hey, I want some chai. And so she's like, I don't know how to make chai. And so she goes on Pinterest, loves Pinterest. And she finds out how to make chai. And so now at night, I, I, I get to drink my Indian tea. I love it. Why do I drink it? Because it makes me feel good. I like it. It tastes good to me. When Jesus says that he's living water, what he's saying is he's going to satisfy you. And if you had found living water, you know what you would do? If you really found water that would satisfy you, you would go back and you would drink that. And that's all you would drink. You would give up chai or you would give up rooibos or Dr. Pepper. You would stop drinking it because living water was better. And it was satisfying you. So you would go back every time and you would tell your friends, Hey, look what I found, living water. And put down your drink and come drink with me. You would speak highly of it and you would drink of it every time you could. And this is what Jesus is. He's living water. And he says, come, let me satisfy you. Drink of me. Drink deep. Joshua had drank of living water. He had so experienced God's presence and his power in his life. Joshua was so transformed by God himself that it led him to being obedient. There's no questioning here. Moses did. Moses said, I don't want to do it. Send someone else. Joshua had been so prepared, had been so gripped by God's glory, that obedience was very natural for him. It didn't even occur to him to disobey. It was like, God, okay, here's instruction. I want to do it. I want to obey. Because understand this, behavior flows from desire. Behavior flows from desire. So your obedience is always the result. That's, it's, it's not the root of the tree. Your obedience is the fruit that is on the branches. And so if your roots go deep into God's glory, then the result, the, the natural overflow is a life of obedience, a life of purity, a life of patience with your wife or your husband or your children. The result is working hard when you're at work, even when the boss is not looking. The result is maintaining your self-control at roundabouts in Khalifa City. It changes how you live, how you talk to people, your work ethic. Everything is impacted, how you think, what you say, how you live. Your obedience your purity flows from your desires, what you want most. And Joshua wanted to please God, to glorify God so bad that obedience was very natural. Let me ask you a question. Who do you obey? Because we all obey. Hear me. We all obey. The question isn't do you obey, because we all do. The question is who do we 
obey? Do we obey our God or do we obey ourselves and our selfish, sinful desires? It's much like worship. The question isn't do you worship. The question is who do you worship? Because you'll obey who you worship. That's how God's made us. We were made to serve. We were made for God ultimately. Let me ask this other question. Think about this seriously. What makes a good day for you? Because we use the language all the time, right? Oh, have you had a good day? Oh, how, oh, it was great, great day. How, great, good. Great, I'm glad you had a good day. Well, what does that even look like for you? When you go home and you see your wife or you greet your husband and you ask, so how was your day? Who asks that? We all do, right? How was your day? Oh, it was good. Why? What does it have to look like? What, what constitutes for you a good day? I mean, there are days that could be absolutely terrible days and are still a good day because you have the presence of God in your life. You can have a good day. And so we need to think, how do I measure good is good when we're being conformed to Christ's image, being obedient like Joshua, or is good when things always go the way we want them to go. So we see here God displays his glory when he has children who are so gripped by him that they respond with obedience. So that displays God's glory. Obedience, children. Number three, God reveals his glory through his own character. So God is revealing his glory through his character. So this story reveals... Very clearly who God is. What is God like? Well, he is powerful. So that's one attribute here. God is powerful. How do you see that? Well, the walls just crumbled. Clearly, his power is on display. You also see that God is faithful. You see the faithfulness of God here in this text. He made promises. This is going to be your land. And now he is delivering on that promise. God always keeps his promises. So we see that he's powerful, that he is faithful. But there's so much more in this text. Verse 21, it's, it's a pretty intense verse if we're honest with ourselves. It says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Listen, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. And then you read later in the chapter that they burned everything. They burned the city to the ground, but not until they killed every man, woman, and child, and every animal that was in the city. Now, you read this, and there are people who don't follow Jesus that would say, Christians have a barbaric, archaic faith. That Old Testament is really weird. God calls Christians, even though they weren't Christians then, that came after Christ, but the people of God, there's continuity. You have God's people, it's the same God, and he seems quite violent here. He seems really mean, and he has no love and no mercy. And so people would say, how could you serve that God who would have Israelites go and, and slaughter women and children and everyone? How, how, how is that a good God? This is hard. Joshua's not easy. It's not an easy book. We have to grapple with this. 
This story is revealing God's character. And this, this part of the story here is revealing that God is holy. It's revealing His absolute holiness. And so several times in this text, you see the words, devoted to destruction. We just read it in verse 21. Sometimes some translations have the words, accursed, or under the ban, or are the main translations for that Hebrew word which is actually very similar to the Arabic word for unclean, haram. And so it's haram. It's it's very similar. Again, it's a Semitic root. And so what you have here is is there's this sense of being cursed, this sense of being unclean, devoted to destruction, under the ban. And so what this is describing is that that the Canaanites were under the curse of God. They were under God's curse. The Canaanites, just so that we're very clear, were not innocent. They were very evil people. They were guilty. And God was here showing His holiness by judging their extreme evil. And we see that not only in the Bible, which does describe it, but if you even go into history, non-biblical, just archaeology has uncovered and has confirmed that the Canaanites practiced extreme perversions of sexuality. And not only that, but they were very cruel to others. They were not nice people. And they even sacrificed their own children to the god Molech. These people were evil as a society, as a civilization. It was not a good thing. These were not innocent people. But God had been very patient with these Canaanites. Because 500 years before Joshua... When God was speaking to Abraham and promising him this land will be theirs, he talks about the Canaanites in Genesis 15, verse 16. And God says that they deserve judgment. And he says, and yet God was gracious and he was merciful. And he says that he's going to spare them because it says their iniquity was not yet complete. And so he was waiting. And 500 years later, it got more out of hand, and God had enough. It's just like a parent, when your child is disobeying, you say, hey, you need to stop. And, and they keep at it. You say, hey, I already gave you one warning. You need to stop. And they keep at it. At some point, as a parent, if you don't discipline, then you're showing that you don't care, that you don't take your role as a parent very seriously. And so parents who say, you need to stop it. I'll, I'll stand up. Five, six, seven warnings and never do anything about it? That's not good parenting. God is holy. He waited five centuries. They could have repented. They absolutely had every opportunity to repent, to turn away. They knew who God was. They had heard about His mighty acts, and yet they did not turn away from their evil, and so God shows His holiness here through righteous judgment. But this text also shows that God is gracious. It shows that He is loving. And so we also see God's grace and His mercy in this same text. Because in verses 22 through 23, it describes that Rahab was not killed. Now, she was a Canaanite. Why was she spared? Because she turned away from the evil and she had put her complete faith in God. We saw that a few weeks ago earlier when she hid the spies. And so she put her faith in action by being obedient. 
And so what you see is God was merciful to Rahab, and he would have been just as merciful to the whole city if they had followed Rahab's example and said, we want to be part of God's people. We want to end our evil and turn to God with trust. There were many people, part of Israel, that weren't ethnic Israelites. Many, many left Egypt that were, that were from Egypt. And so Rahab is evidence, and we'll see later in the story even more of this in Joshua, where there were people that were not descendants of Abraham physically that were part of God's people spiritually because they believed in God and turned away from their sin. That faith. The Canaanites had every opportunity. They would not repent. And so God showed his judgment, his holiness, but also his grace. It says through these languages, they were devoted to destruction. Now, what you see here is everyone in the story is devoted to God in some way. The people of Israelites are God's tools to execute judgment on the Canaanites. So they're devoted to God's grace. And Rahab was devoted to God's grace as well. The rest of the city was devoted to God's holiness, to his judgment. And so everyone is devoted to God in some way. Every human being alive today is either devoted to the grace of God or to the judgment of God, his love or his holiness. And there's no one between. Everyone in this room is devoted to God, either to his grace or to his judgment. It's just there's no other option. Either you have faith in Christ which is what this is pointing to ultimately. Jesus is the one who endured our judgment, our shame, our guilt on the cross. Jesus paid it all. And so those of us that have repented of our sin and put complete trust in Jesus, then he paid it all. He endured our judgment on the cross. And so now we're covered by his grace. But if you're here and you have never repented of your sins, and you've never placed your complete trust in Jesus, then you're still under God's judgment. But you don't have to be. You can turn to Jesus today, and like Rahab, experience forgiveness and salvation, or you can refuse like the other Canaanites and experience his judgment. God offers a full pardon for those who will turn to him, respond with faith and repentance. So we see that God is gracious, but we also see lastly that he's wise. We see here that it shows that God is full of wisdom. He has a plan. The walls of Jericho falling, them being defeated was foretold. God saw it coming. He's working it out. And so your life today, I mean, I don't know if it's like me, but some days it just seems kind of simple. Like it's not that eternal. Like you might think that my life looks so exciting. It's not. It's pretty normal. I help kids with the homework just like you do. I have to clean toilets and vacuum just like a lot of you do. I, I have a very normal life. My role is different from yours, but I'm just as human and have just a mundane day-to-day existence as the next person. Life can be so daily, right? It's not always exciting. Life can be monotonous at times. But you see, here's the thing. When you understand God's work in all of human history you realize that your life and all of it's just so dailiness is part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan for human history that he's revealing his glory and he's taking a people, us. 
and transforming us, using us to display His glory. As you see, more people experience salvation and enjoy Christ. And so it gives our lives eternal significance and value. So your life absolutely matters. It matters. We'll dig deeper into this in our home groups this week as we look more at the context but the Canaanites can understand this and look at it a little bit more closely. But our time, we have to continue. We, we can't stay here. The story of Joshua is very important. It's revealing God's character, that he's powerful and he's faithful and holy, gracious, and he is wise and deserves our affections and our loyalty. So the more you read about him, the more you focus your, your lives on him, and reflecting His glory every day, then your heart and desires will change, and you'll be transformed by His Spirit, and you'll, you'll be more victorious in your daily life. So let's look at the fourth truth here, that God reveals His glory last as we close. By establishing His kingdom. So what He's doing here is He's establishing His kingdom. Now verse 27, we'll, we'll finish this chapter. It says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So God made Joshua famous. He, he exalted God. He defeated the enemy. So now God has exalted him for accomplishing God's divine purposes. And so Joshua points to the better and final Yeshua, Jesus. Everything about Joshua points to the final and better fulfillment, which is our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the nation of Israel going in, conquering the Canaanites and taking the land has to be understood. It's important for us. We have to understand it in terms of the ultimate reality that it is pointing to, which is the kingdom of God defeating the kingdom of Satan. That's what this is pointing to. God's kingdom invading, coming in to this world that's broken and occupied by Satan, that's in darkness, and death rules. And right now, it has already entered in. Because right now, Jesus is the king, and he is ruling over and in the hearts of his people. But he's going to come back one day. And he's not going to rule just in our hearts spiritually. He's going to have a very real physical reign. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king. That's coming. So what you're seeing here is the kingdom of God defeating the kingdom of darkness. And that's why you have this heavenly being, this commander of the army of the Lord, who's holding a sword and is leading the charge Why? Because while Joshua was attacking the Canaanites, at the same time, there was a spiritual battle taking place right there on the same battleground. But it's invisible, and Joshua couldn't see it. But God gave him, he pulled back the curtain just a little, and he allowed Joshua to see that there's a very real battle going on behind the scenes in the unseen world between God's army and that of Satan. And we're in a very real spiritual battle. And what Joshua couldn't see was the battle waging all around him, but it was invisible. And there's a battle that wages around us, and it's just as real as our physical world. It's spiritual, but it's real. And we battle against not flesh and blood, but we're battling against Satan. So when you're tempted 
to do things that you know would hurt your soul or your marriage or your children or anything. And, and when you give in to that temptation, you're succumbing to the kingdom of darkness. And at that point, we're showing that our allegiance is more to our own little kingdom, which is unfortunately part of the greater kingdom of darkness, rather than being loyal to the kingdom of God. And this is a daily battle for our identity even. Because when we, when we give in to sinful thoughts, desires, or whatever, or, or words, what's going on is we're saying something about who we say we are, about our identity. And so your identity, when you look in the mirror and say, who am I? What is it wrapped up with? Your, your career? A lot of people, they define who they are, their significance, their worth, their joy is in their job, in their career advancement. Others is with their family. And wives that define their whole self-worth in their husbands, loving them. And we let our wives down all the time. Not on purpose, but we're human, and we do. Others find their self-worth in accomplishing things other than work, whether it be sports or financial or otherwise. But we can all wrap up our identity in many things that are not eternal. And the bottom line is this. Your identity, you know what it really is? A servant of King Jesus. That's your identity. You're a servant, bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. Now, you're more than that. You're also adopted. God is your father. Jesus is your big brother in that sense. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. So your identity has to be wrapped up in who you are in Christ, not in anything else from this world, which is allegiance to the kingdom of this world, our own little mini-kingdoms, rather than the kingdom of God. If you want your life to have true meaning and getting up on Sundays is exciting to you, then you live for the kingdom of God because then everything else that you do from day to day becomes a means, not an end. Your job is not an end. It's a means. Parenting is not an end. It's a means. A means for what it means to glorify Jesus. Everything that we do is a means to the end of glorifying Jesus. When we make all of these little things in our world ends, it's not satisfying. It leaves us hungry and empty because we're living for something less than the kingdom of God. And so Joshua is showing us that Jesus has penetrated. He now is ruling in our hearts and we must yield to him and enjoy him and gladly say, Jesus, you're my king. I want to. Like we read earlier in 1 John 5, describing what is our victory and describes how we have the commandments, and it's not burdensome. If you're born of God, you have the Holy Spirit, then the commandments ought not be burdensome. It ought to be joy to obey Him, because we have been transformed. So what satisfies us? We must honestly think of this, because here's what's, here's what's going to happen. One day, we will hear a trumpet. Now, it won't be like these seven trumpets They'll be similar, because when those trumpets sounded, the enemy was defeated. The walls crumbled, and God had victory over the enemy. One day, we're going to hear a trumpet. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Praise be to our victorious King Jesus. And I pray I'm alive when I hear that trumpet. I want to hear it. I want to see the walls of the enemy crumbled and walk into the promised land with victory for eternity, enjoying our king. But if I die, that's okay. Because the dead will rise first, will be resurrected when Jesus comes back with the host of heaven to defeat the enemy, to sound the trumpet, to have the walls of Satan's kingdom collapsed. And we will be resurrected and we will see the enemy defeated and we will enter into the rest, eternal rest. That's what's awaiting us. That's what drives us every day to enjoy Jesus with one eye on heaven. You're the one here serving him, enjoying him and doing it together. And we expect victory in our daily lives. Victory is ours. You pray with me. Father, this morning we are humbled. We are in awe of who you are. Father, we praise you. We praise you, Jesus, for being our king. We praise you, Spirit, for being in us and conforming us to your son's image. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. We thank you for the gift of, of the final rest this land which we will live in with you for eternity, the new heavens, the new earth. May we live every day, Father, expecting victory. Our victory is ours. Help us, for we need you. We are weak. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for our redemption. We pray this for your kingdom and your glory's sake, Jesus. Amen.